0: You're listening to Mysterious Mountains, a production of the West Virginia Humanities Council, where together we explore the imaginary landscape of West Virginia through genre fiction and folklore.
1: Evil cannot be victorious. Your sins will find you out. Confronted with the goodness of God, then evil cannot stand.
0: That's Dr. Suzanne Bray of Lille Catholic University in northern France. She'll be joining me after the story to discuss the theology of Uncle Abner and how he might just be written in imitation of the Old Testament Israelite prophets. But first, the mystery. West Virginia Humanities Council presents Uncle Abner by Melville Davison Post The Angel of the Lord Read by Kyle Warmack. I always thought my father took a long chance, but somebody had to take it, and certainly I was the one least likely to be suspected. It was a wild country. There were no banks. We had to pay for the cattle, and somebody had to carry the money. My father and my uncle were always being watched. My father was right, I think. Abner, he said, I'm going to send Martin. No one will ever suppose that we would trust this money to a child. My uncle drummed on the table and rapped his heels on the floor. He was a bachelor, stern and silent, but he could talk, and when he did, he began at the beginning, and you heard him through. And what he said, well, he stood behind it. To stop Martin... "'my father went on, would be only to lose the money, "'but to stop you would be to get somebody killed. "'I knew what my father meant. "'He meant that no one would undertake to rob Abner "'until after he had shot him to death. "'I ought to say a word about my Uncle Abner. "'He was one of those austere, deeply religious men "'who were the product of the Reformation. "'He always carried a Bible in his pocket, "'and he read it where he pleased.' Once the crowd at Roy's tavern had tried to make sport of him when he got his book out by the fire, but they never tried it again. When the fight was over, Abner paid Roy eighteen silver dollars for the broken chairs and the table, and he was the only man in the tavern who could ride a horse. Abner belonged to the church militant, and his god was a warlord. So that is how they came to send me. The money was in greenbacks in packages. They wrapped it up in newspaper and put it into a pair of saddlebags, and I set out. I was about nine years old. No, it was not as bad as you think. I could ride a horse all day when I was nine years old. Most any kind of a horse. I was tough as wit leather, and I knew the country I was going into. You must not picture a little boy rolling a hoop in the park. It was an afternoon in early autumn. The clay roads froze in the night. They thawed out in the day, and they were a bit sticky. I was to stop at Roy's Tavern, south of the river, and go on in the morning. Now and then I passed some cattle driver, but no one overtook me on the road until almost sundown. Then I heard a horse behind me, and a man came up. I knew him. He was a cattleman named Dix. He had once been a shipper, but he had come in for a good deal of bad luck. His partner, Alkire, had absconded with a big sum of money due the grazers. This had ruined Dix. He had given up his land, which wasn't very much, to the grazers. After that he had gone over the mountain to his people— got together a pretty big sum of money, and bought a large tract of grazing land. Foreign claimants had sued him in the courts on some old title, and he had lost the whole tract and the money that he had paid for it. He had married a remote cousin of ours, and he had always lived on her lands adjoining those of my Uncle Abner. Dick seemed surprised to see me on the road. "'So it's you, Martin,' he said. "'I thought Abner would be going into the upcountry.' One gets to be a pretty cunning youngster, even at this age, and I told no one what I was about. Father wants the cattle over the river to run a month, I returned easily, and I'm going up there to give his orders to the grazers. He looked me over, then he wrapped the saddlebags with his knuckles. You carry a good deal of baggage, my lad. I laughed. Horse feed, I said. You know my father, a horse must be fed at dinner time, but a man can go till he gets it. One was always glad of any company on the road, and we fell into an idle talk. Dick said he was going out into the ten-mile country, and I have always thought that was, in fact, his intention. The road turned south about a mile our side of the tavern. I never liked Dick's; He was of an apologetic manner, with a cunning, irresolute face. A little later, a man passed us at a gallop. He was a drover named Marks, who lived beyond my Uncle Abner, and he was riding hard to get in before night. He hailed us, but he did not stop. We got a shower of mud and Dix cursed him. I have never seen a more evil face. I suppose it was because Dix usually had a grin about his mouth, and when that sort of face gets twisted, there's nothing like it. After that, he was silent. He rode with his head down and his fingers plucking at his jaw like a man in some perplexity. At the crossroads, he stopped and sat for some time in the saddle, looking before him. I left him there, but at the bridge he overtook me. He said he had concluded to get some supper and go on after that. Roy's tavern consisted of a single big room with a loft above it for sleeping quarters. A narrow covered way connected this room with the house in which Roy and his family lived. We used to hang our saddles on wooden pegs in this covered way. I have seen that wall so hung with saddles that you could not find a place for another stirrup. But tonight, Dix and I were alone in the tavern. He looked cunningly at me when I took the saddlebags with me into the big room and when I went with them up the ladder into the loft. But he said nothing. In fact, he had scarcely spoken. It was cold. The road had begun to freeze when we got in. Roy had lighted a big fire. I left Dix before it. I did not take off my clothes because Roy's beds were mattresses of wheat straw covered with heifer skins good enough for summer but pretty cold on such a night, even with the heavy hand-woven coverlet in big white and black checks. I put the saddlebags under my head and lay down. I went at once to sleep, but I suddenly awaked. I thought there was a candle in the loft, but it was a gleam of light from the fire below shining through a crack in the floor. I lay and watched it, the coverlet pulled up to my chin. Then I began to wonder why the fire burned so brightly. Dix ought to be on his way some time, and it was a custom for the last man to rake out the fire. There was not a sound. The light streamed steadily through the crack. Presently it occurred to me that Dix had forgotten the fire and that I ought to go down and rake it out. Roy always warned us about the fire when he went to bed. I got up, wrapped the great coverlet around me, went over to the gleam of light and looked down through the crack in the floor. I had to lie out at full length to get my eye against the board. The hickory logs had turned to great embers and glowed like a furnace of red coals. Before this fire stood Dix. He was holding out his hands and turning himself about as though he were cold to the marrow. But with all that chill upon him, when the man's face came into the light, I saw it covered with a sprinkling of sweat. I shall carry the memory of that face. The grin was there at the mouth, but it was pulled about. The eyelids were drawn in. The teeth were clamped together. I have seen a dog poisoned with strychnine look like that. I lay there and watched the thing. It was as though something potent and evil dwelling within the man were in travail to reform his face upon its image. You cannot realize how that devilish labor held me. The face worked as though it were some plastic stuff, and the sweat oozed through. And all the time the man was cold and he was crowding into the fire and turning himself about and putting out his hands and it was as though the heat would no more enter in and warm him than it will enter in and warm the ice. It seemed to scorch him and leave him cold, and he was fearfully and desperately cold. I could smell the singe of the fire on him, but it had no power against this diabolic chill. I began myself to shiver, although I had the heavy coverlet wrapped around me. The thing was a fascinating horror. I seemed to be looking down into the chamber of some abominable maternity. The room was filled with the steady red light of the fire. Not a shadow moved in it, and there was silence. The man had taken off his boots, and he twisted before the fire without a sound. It was like the shuddering tales of possession or transformation by a drug. I thought the man would burn himself to death. His clothes smoked. How could he be so cold? Then finally the thing was over. I did not see it, for his face was in the fire. But suddenly he grew composed and stepped back into the room. I tell you I was afraid to look. I do not know what thing I expected to see there, but I did not think it would be Dick's. Well, it was Dick's, but not the Dick's that any of us knew. There was a certain apology, a certain indecision, a certain servility in that other Dick's, and these things showed about his face. But there was none of these weaknesses in this man. His face had been pulled into planes of firmness and decision. The slack in his features had been taken up The furtive moving of the eye was gone. He stood now squarely on his feet, and he was full of courage. But I was afraid of him, as I have never been afraid of any human creature in this world. Something that had been servile in him, that had skulked behind disguises, that had worn the habiliments of subterfuge, had now come forth, and it had molded the features of this man to its abominable courage. Presently, he began to move swiftly about the room. He looked out at the window and he listened at the door. Then he went softly into the covered way. I thought he was going on his journey, but then he could not be going with his boots there beside the fire. In a moment he returned with a saddle blanket in his hand and came softly across the room to the ladder. Then I understood the thing that he intended, and I was motionless with fear. I tried to get up, but I could not. I could only lie there with my eyes strained to the crack in the floor. His foot was on the ladder, and I could already feel his hand on my throat and that blanket on my face and the suffocation of death in me when far away, on the hard road, I heard a horse. He heard it too, for he stopped on the ladder and turned his evil face about toward the door. The horse was on the long hill beyond the bridge, and he was coming as though the devil rode in his saddle. It was a hard, dark night. The frozen road was like flint. I could hear the iron of the shoes ring. Whoever rode that horse rode for his life, or for something more than his life, or he was mad. I heard the horse strike the bridge and thunder across it, and all the while Dix hung there on the ladder by his hands and listened. Now he sprang softly down, pulled on his boots, and stood up before the fire, his face, this new face, gleaming with its evil courage. The next moment the horse stopped. I could hear him plunge under the bit, his iron shoes ripping the frozen road. Then the door leapt back and my Uncle Abner was in the room. I was so glad that my heart almost choked me and for a moment I could hardly see. Everything was in a sort of mist. Abner swept the room in a glance, then he stopped. Thank God, he said. I'm in time. And he drew his hand down over his face, with the fingers hard and close, as though he pulled something away. In time for what? said Dix. Abner looked him over, and I could see the muscles of his big shoulders stiffen as he looked. And again he looked him over. Then he spoke, and his voice was strange. Dix, he said. Is it you? Who would it be but me? said Dix. It might be the devil, said Abner. Do you know what your face looks like? No matter what it looks like? said Dix. And so, said Abner, we have got courage with this new face. Dix threw up his head. Now look here, Abner, he said. I've had about enough of your big manner. You ride a horse to death, you come plunging in here, what the devil's wrong with you? There's nothing wrong with me, replied Abner, and his voice was low. But there's something damnably wrong with you, Dix. I the devil take you, said Dix and I saw him measure Abner with his eye. It was not fear that held him back. Fear was gone out of the creature. I think it was a kind of prudence. Abner's eyes kindled, but his voice remained low and steady. Those are big words, he said. Well, cried Dix, get out of the door then and let me pass. Not just yet, said Abner. I have something to say to you. Say it then, cried Dix, and get out of the door. Why, hurry, said Abner. It's a long time until daylight, and I have a good deal to say. You'll not say it to me, said Dix. I've got a trip to make tonight. Get out of the door. Abner did not move. You've got a longer trip to make tonight than you think, Dix, he said, but you're going to hear what I have to say before you set out on it. I saw Dix rise on his toes, and I knew what he wished for. He wished for a weapon and he wished for the bulk of bone and muscle that would have a chance against Abner. But he had neither the one nor the other, and he stood there on his toes and began to curse, low, vicious, withering oaths that were like the swish of a knife. Abner was looking at the man with a curious interest. It is strange, he said, as though speaking to himself, but it explains the thing. While one is the servant of neither, one has the courage of neither. But when he finally makes his choice he gets what his master has to give him. Then he spoke to Dix. "'Sit down,' he said, and it was in that deep, level voice that Abner used when he was standing close behind his words. Every man in the hills knew that voice. One had only a moment to decide after he heard it. Dix knew that, and yet for one instant he hung there on his toes, his eyes shimmering like weasels, his mouth twisting. He was not afraid. If he had had the ghost of a chance against Abner, he would have taken it. But he knew he had not, and with an oath he threw the saddle blanket into a corner and sat down by the fire. Abner came away from the door then. He took off his greatcoat. He put a log on the fire and he sat down across the hearth from Dick's. The new hickory sprang crackling into flames. For a good while there was silence. The two men sat at either end of the hearth without a word. Abner seemed to have fallen into a study of the man before him. Finally he spoke. "Dicks," he said, do you believe in the providence of God? Dix flung up his head. Abner, he cried, if you're going to talk nonsense, I promise you upon my oath that I will not stay to listen. Abner did not at once reply. He seemed to begin now at another point. Dix, he said, you've had a good deal of bad luck. Perhaps you wish it put that way. Now Abner, he cried. You speak the truth. I have had hell's luck. Hell's luck you have had, replied Abner. It is a good word. I accept it. Your partner disappeared with all the money of the grazers on the other side of the river. You lost the land in your lawsuit. And you are tonight without a dollar. That was a big tract of land to lose. Where did you get so great a sum of money? I've told you a hundred times, replied Dix. I got it from my people over the mountains. You know where I got it. Yes, said Abner, I know where you got it, Dix, and I know another thing. But first I want to show you this. And he took a little penknife out of his pocket. And I want to tell you that I believe in the providence of God, Dix. I don't care fiddler's damn what you believe in, said Dix. But you do care that I know, replied Abner. What do you know, said Dix? I know where your partner is. I was uncertain about what Dix was going to do, but finally he answered with a sneer. Then you know something that nobody else knows. Yes, replied Abner. There is another man who knows. Who, said Dix. You, said Abner. Dix leaned over in his chair and looked at Abner closely. Abner, he cried, you are talking nonsense. Nobody knows where Alki is. If I knew, I'd go after him. Dix, Abner answered, and it was again in that deep, level voice. If I had got here five minutes later, you would have gone after him. I can promise you that, Dix. Now listen. I was in the upcountry when I got your word about the partnership, and I was on my way back when at Big Run I broke a stirrup leather. I had no knife, and I went into the store and bought this one. Then the storekeeper told me that Alkire had gone to see you. I didn't want to interfere with him, and I turned back. "'so I did not become your partner. "'And so I did not disappear. "'What was it that prevented? "'The broken stirrup leather? "'The knife? "'In the old times, Dick's men were so blind "'that God had to open their eyes "'before they could see his angel in the way before them. "'They are still blind, "'but they ought not to be that blind. "'Well, on the night that Alkair disappeared, "'I met him on his way to your house. "'It was out there at the bridge.' He had broken a stirrup leather, and he was trying to fasten it with a nail. He asked me if I had a knife, and I gave him this one. It was beginning to rain, and I went on, leaving him there in the road with the knife in his hand. Abner paused. The muscles of his great iron jaw contracted. God forgive me, he said. It was his angel again. I never saw Alkire after that. Nobody ever saw him after that, said Dix. He got out of the hills that night. No, replied Abner, it was not in the night when Alkire started on his journey, it was in the day. Abner, said Dix, you talk like a fool. If Alkire had traveled the road in the day, somebody would have seen him. Nobody could see him on the road he traveled, replied Abner. What road? said Dix. Dix, replied Abner, you will learn that soon enough. Abner looked hard at the man. You saw Alkire when he started on his journey, but did you see who it was that went with him? Nobody went with him, replied Dix. Alkire rode alone. Not alone, said Abner. There was another. I didn't see him, said Dix. And yet, continued Abner, you made Alkire go with him. I saw Cunning enter Dix's face. He was puzzled, but he thought Abner off the scent. And I made Alkire go with somebody, did I? Well, who was it? Did you see him? Nobody ever saw him. He must be a stranger. No, replied Abner. He rode the hills before we came into them. Indeed, said Dix. And what kind of a horse did he ride? White, said Abner. Dix got some inkling of what Abner meant now, and his face grew livid. What are you driving at? He cried. You sit here beating around the bush. If you know anything, say it out. Let's hear it. What is it? Abner put out his big sinewy hand as though to thrust Dix back into his chair. "'Listen,' he said. Two days after that, I wanted to get out into the ten-mile country, "'and I went through your lands. "'I rode a path through the narrow valley west of your house. "'At a point on the path, where there is an apple tree, "'something caught my eye and I stopped. Five minutes later, I knew exactly what had happened under that apple tree. "'Someone had written there. "'He had stopped under that tree.' Then something happened, and the horse had run away. I knew that by the tracks of a horse on this path. I knew that the horse had a rider and that it had stopped under this tree because there was a limb cut from the tree at a certain height. I knew the horse had remained there because the small twigs of the apple limb had been pared off and they lay in a heap on the path. I knew that something had frightened the horse and that it had run away because the sod was torn up where it had jumped. Ten minutes later... I knew that the rider had not been in the saddle when the horse jumped. I knew what it was that had frightened the horse, and I knew that the thing had occurred the day before. Now how did I know that? Listen. I put my horse into the tracks of that other horse under the tree and studied the ground. Immediately I saw where the weeds beside the path had been crushed, as though some animal had been lying down there, and in the very center of that bed I saw a little heap of fresh earth. That was strange, Dix, that fresh earth where the animal had been lying down. It had come there after the animal had got up, or else it would have been pressed flat. But where had it come from? I got off and walked around the apple tree, moving out from it in an ever-widening circle. Finally I found an ant heap, the top of which had been scraped away, as though one had taken up the loose earth in his hands. Then I went back and plucked up some of the earth. The underclods of it were colored, as with red paint. No, it wasn't paint. There was a brush fence some fifty yards away. I went over to it and followed it down. Opposite the apple tree, the weeds were again crushed as though some animal had lain there. I sat down in that place and drew a line with my eye across a log of the fence to a limb of the apple tree. Then I got on my horse and again put him in the tracks of that other horse under the tree. The imaginary line passed through the pit of my stomach. I am four inches taller than Alkire. It was then that Dix began to curse. I had seen his face work while Abner was speaking, and that spray of sweat had reappeared, but he kept the courage he had got. "'Lord Almighty, man!' he cried. "'How prettily you sum it up! "'We shall presently have lawyer Abner with his brief.' because my renters have killed a calf, because one of their horses, frightened at the blood, has bolted, and because they cover the blood with earth so the other horses traveling the path may not do the like. Straightway I have shot Alkire out of his saddle. Man, what a mare's nest! And now, lawyer Abner, with your neat little conclusions, what did I do with Alkire after I had killed him? Did I cause him to vanish into the air with a smell of sulfur? Or did I cause the earth to yawn and Alkire to descend into its bowels? Dix, replied Abner, your words move somewhat near the truth. Upon my soul, cried Dix, you compliment me. If I had that trick of magic, believe me, you would already be some distance down. Abner remained a moment silent. Dix, he said, what does it mean when one finds a plot of Earth re-sodded? Is that a riddle? cried Dix. Well, confound me if I don't answer it. You charge me with murder and then you fling in this neat conundrum. Now, what could be the answer to that riddle, Abner? If one had done a murder, this sod would overlie a grave and Alki would be in it in his bloody shirt. Do I give the answer? You do not, replied Abner. No, cried Dix. Your sodded plot no grave and Alkire not within it, waiting for the trump of Gabriel. Why, man, where are your little damned conclusions? Dix, said Abner, You do not deceive me in the least. Alkire is not sleeping in a grave. Then in the air, sneered Dix, with a smell of sulfur? Nor in the air, said Abner. Then consumed with fire like the priests of Baal. Nor with fire, said Abner. Dix had got back the quiet of his face. This banter had put him where he was when Abner entered. This is all fool's talk, he said. If I had killed Alkire, what could I have done with the body and the horse? What could I have done with the horse? Remember, no man has ever seen Alkire's horse any more than he has seen Alkire, and for the reason that Alkire rode him out of the hills that night. Now look here, Abner, you have asked me a good many questions. I will ask you one. Among your little conclusions, do you find that I did this thing alone or with the aid of others? Dix, replied Abner. I will answer that upon my own belief that you had no accomplice. Then, said Dix, how could I have carried off the horse? Alkire I might carry, but his horse weighed thirteen hundred pounds. Dix, said Abner, no man helped you do this thing, but there were men who helped you conceal it. And now, cried Dix, the man is going mad. Who could I trust with such work, I ask you? Have I a renter that would not tell it when he moved on to another's land or when he got a quart of cider in him? Where are the men who helped me? Dix, said Abner. They have been dead these fifty years. I heard Dix laugh then, and his evil face lighted as though a candle were behind it, and in truth I thought he had got Abner silenced. In the name of heaven, he cried, with such proofs it is a wonder that you did not have me hanged. And hanged you should have been, "'said Abner. "'Well,' cried Dix, "'go and tell the sheriff, "'and mind you lay before him "'those little neat conclusions, "'how from a horse track "'and the place where a calf was butchered "'you have reasoned on Alkire's murder, "'and to conceal the body and the horse "'you have reasoned on the aid of men "'who were rotting in their graves when I was born, "'and see how he will receive you.' "'Abner gave no attention "'to the man's flippant speech. "'He got his great silver watch out of his pocket, "'pressed the stem, and looked. Then he spoke in his deep, even voice. Dix, he said, it is nearly midnight. In an hour, you must be on your journey, and I have something more to say. Listen. I knew this thing had been done the previous day because it had rained on the night I met Alkire, and the earth of this ant-heap had been disturbed after that. Moreover, this earth had been frozen, and that showed a night had passed since it had been placed there. And I knew the rider of that horse was Alkire, because beside the path near the severed twigs lay my knife where it had fallen from his hand. This much I learned in some fifteen minutes. The rest took somewhat longer. I followed the track of the horse until it stopped in the little valley below. It was easy to follow while the horse ran because the sod was torn. But when it ceased to run, there was no track that I could follow. There was a little stream threading the valley, and I began at the wood, and came slowly up to see if I could find where the horse had crossed. Finally, I found a horse track, and there was also a man's track, which meant that you had caught the horse and were leading it away. But where? On the rising ground above, there was an old orchard, where there had once been a house. The work about that house had been done a hundred years. It was rotted down now. You had opened this orchard into the pasture. I rode all over the face of this hill, and finally I entered this orchard. There was a great, flat, moss-covered stone, lying a few steps from where the house had stood. As I looked, I noticed that the moss growing from it into the earth had been broken along the edges of the stone, and then I noticed that for a few feet about the stone, the ground had been re-sodded. I got down and lifted up some of this new sod. Under it, the earth had been soaked with that red paint. It was clever of you dicks to re-sod the ground. That took only a little time, and it effectually concealed the place where you had killed the horse but it was foolish of you to forget that the broken moss around the edges of the great flat stone could not be mended. Abner, cried Dix, stop. And I saw that spray of sweat and his face working like kneaded bread and the shiver of that abominable chill on him. Abner was silent for a moment and then he went on, but from another quarter. Twice, said Abner, the angel of the Lord stood before me and I did not know it, but the third time I knew it. It is not in the cry of the wind, nor in the voice of many waters that his presence is made known to us, that man in Israel had only the sign that the beast under him would not go on. Twice I had as good a sign, and tonight, when Marks broke a stirrup-leather before my house and called me to the door and asked me for a knife to mend it, I saw and I came. The log that Abner had thrown on was burned down, and the fire was again a mass of embers. The room was filled with that dull red light. Dix had got on to his feet, and he now stood twisting before the fire, his hands reaching out to it and that cold creeping in his bones and the smell of the fire on him. Abner rose, and when he spoke his voice was like a thing that has dimensions and weight. Dix, he said, you robbed the grazers, you shot Alkire out of his saddle, and a child you would have murdered. I saw the sleeve of Abner's coat begin to move, then it stopped. He stood staring at something against the wall. I looked to see what the thing was, but I did not see it. Abner was looking beyond the wall, as though it had been moved away. And all the time Dix had been shaking with that hellish cold and twisting on the hearth and crowding into the fire. Then he fell back, and he was the Dix I knew. His face was slack, his eye was furtive, and he was full of terror. It was his weak whine that awakened Abner. He put up his hand and brought the fingers hard down over his face, and then he looked at this new creature cringing and beset with fears. Dix, he said. Alkire was just a man. He sleeps as peacefully in that abandoned well under his horse as he would sleep in the churchyard. My hand has been held back. You may go. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. "'saith the Lord. "'But where shall I go, Abner?' the creature wailed. "'I have no money, and I'm cold.' "'Abner took out his leather wallet and flung it toward the door. "'There is money,' he said. "'A hundred dollars, and there is my coat. "'Go. "'But if I find you in the hills tomorrow, or if I ever find you, "'I warn you, in the name of the living God, "'that I will stamp you out of life.' "'I saw the loathsome thing writhe into Abner's coat.' and seize the wallet and slip out through the door. And a moment later, I heard a horse. And I crept back onto Roy's heiferskin. When I came down at daylight, my Uncle Abner was reading by the fire. The city of Lille is right along the present-day border with Belgium and is the center of the fourth largest metropolitan area in France. With history dating back thousands of years, it's seen Viking raids, the reign of the great Emperor Charlemagne in the Middle Ages, German occupation during both world wars, and today it's easy to get from the bustling metropolis to both London and Paris by train. Included in the heart of the city is the sprawling campus of Lille University, France's largest, at 67,000 students. Adding about 36,000 more students nearby, and often mistaken for part of the larger state university, is Lille Catholic University, the country's largest private, not-for-profit institution of higher learning. And in that hive of knowledge across the sea, amid the cutting-edge research labs mixed with vaulting Second Empire brick and stone facades, is Dr. Suzanne Bray, who has written on the importance of Uncle Abner in detective fiction and teaches some of the Uncle Abner stories to her international cadre of students.
1: So I'm a professor of British Literature and Civilization. I lecture, I teach class, I grade papers, and I also do quite a lot of research. And my specialist research area is the interaction between theology or religious thought and popular culture.
0: And this crossover of religion and pop culture, how did that start for you? How did you get that specialty in particular?
1: It started when I was working on my PhD, which was on various British authors who had tried to pass uh, some kind of religious message in their works. And I basically looked at those who were the most successful and tried to analyze why they were the most successful. That meant doing a lot of questionnaires and also analyzing style approach. And I really enjoyed doing that and got to read a lot of books about literature and theology, but also got to read a lot of bestsellers and try to analyze what sort of religious message was being conveyed by that particular work.
0: Um, I I think I I have to ask if that was your bridge to Uncle Abner, because... Certainly, at least one writer has noted that Uncle Abner, who was immensely popular in the United States at the time of his writing, didn't seem to enjoy much notoriety overseas, and yet, here you are, British and and now in France, so how and when did you first discover... Uncle Abner?
1: I, I was about 17, I think, at the time, and I was reading um, Dorothy Sayers' anthologies of detective fiction, detective fiction stories, and the story The Wrong Hand is in volume three, which that was the first one I read. And I, I liked it and was sufficiently interested to try and find a few others. And then Later on, I I hadn't thought about Uncle Abner for ages, when a friend of mine who was organising a conference on Faulkner, William Faulkner, um, asked me if I could say anything in the conference. And I said, well, quite frankly, no, because I didn't know much about Faulkner. And he handed me um, a book of Faulkner's detective fiction, the Gavin Stevens stories, and I Read them, and I thought, "Hey, this sounds remarkably like Melville, Davidson, Post, Uncle Abner." So I started researching it, reread all the Uncle Abner stories, and wrote an article and spoke at the conference on Melville, Davidson, Post's influence on Faulkner. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) after that, someone said, "Well, why don't you actually write something about Melville, Davidson, Post?" So um, I did, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) and um. because of that, I also occasionally teach some of his short stories as well, because uh, the students like them. So,
0: Yeah, can you share some details about that? I'm really curious uh, how, again, not only how Abner maybe gets taught at a, in a university setting, but how an American mystery writer and a sort of quintessentially American character gets taught in a... French university. <laughs> so how does that, how, what are the details of that?
1: I don't think my course is particularly French. I teach a course on uh, short fiction in English, and I deal with three themes, crime, horror, and fantasy. And in the crime section, I basically take a lot of the, or the best-selling or the most esteemed uh, short stories in the crime fiction genre of all time. And there was a survey done uh, in which basically writers of detective fiction were asked to choose the 12 greatest short stories in the crime fiction genre of all time. And number eight was Naboth's Vineyard. Um, So, uh, And I thought that would be a good one to choose to teach. And it went down remarkably well the the students absolutely loved it. They were very interested in the different ideas in the story, and in some cases it led them to go on and read other uncle Abner. Although I'm in a French university, my students are from all over the world. We're a very international university. have have a lot of American students, but also a lot of Asians from different countries and also students from different countries in Europe. So all my classes, which are taught in English, have a very, very international student body. I didn't find that there was any particular nationality that didn't like Uncle Abner. They all seemed to to go for him. (laughs)
0: <laughs> there, there's something sort of universally satisfying about uh, Uncle Abner's brand of justice. And you, you mentioned to me before our conversation that, that you had some students from Hong Kong who found some particular parallels in Naboth's vineyard, which listeners will have the opportunity to partake in later in the season. But can you talk a little bit about that?
1: These were students who were very much involved in pro-democracy in Hong Kong, and they were protesting against what they considered to be abuses by those in authority. And they found Ankar story in Nabos vineyard very, very interesting and sort of as a way of perceiving democracy and how, in a democratic system, how can you get rid of corrupt officials or corrupt governments? It was something that particularly rang a bell for them. But it's always interesting what a story about justice and about what is justice and what is democracy, etc. They always um, brings up something as strikes a chord among uh, different students from different countries.
0: Was it your personal experience with Abner that caused you to decide to bring him into your classes, or what were the unique aspects of Abner that you want to see brought out in the class?
1: Well, one thing about the stories is that the atmosphere is absolutely fantastic. You really feel that you are in mid-19th century America, in pre-Civil War, and really get a feel of the society at the time, what the the culture was like, and that's something that the students really appreciate. And also the whole combination of crime fiction, justice, and religious thought is particularly lively in these stories. They study Uncle Abner just at the same time as they're doing um, G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown stories. And it's, if you like, two different ways of having a man of God as a detective. And the comparison is quite interesting for the students. So I found that Uncle Abner provided a very good contrast to Father Brown that the students could get something out of.
0: Just very briefly, what what would that contrast be? How is Abner so very different from Father Brown?
1: I think Abner is very much the prophetic figure, um, very much the confrontational figure, while Father Brown is much more discreet in his approach. He's he's far more the pastor um, than (laughs) than the prophet. (laughs) Father Brown wants to um, help the innocent and help the victims, while Abner definitely wants to see justice done. And to denounce the wicked.
0: Yes, there's definitely some divine punishment, and particularly in uh, the story we've heard in this episode, the angel of the Lord. So, you've written a paper on Abner after you after you sort of rediscovered him in the process of this conference on Faulkner. You wrote a paper published in 2015, I believe which I love the title of it. It's called Melville Davison Post's Uncle Abner Stories, or The Recreation of Virginia as the Biblical Promised Land with Abner as its Prophet. Can you tell me a little bit about this paper? What's the argument in a nutshell? And what was the inspiration and backstory for writing on that particular subject?
1: I think there was the very much what I was talking about earlier, the the feel, the atmosphere of the Uncle Abner stories. And again, the language, the biblical language, a language that sounds like the authorized version of the Bible, the just the rhythms of speech and the turns of phrase that take you back all the time into the into the Old Testament. And really getting that feeling that um Israel the Israelites at the time of the Judges, particularly the period of the Judges, A little bit Kings later on, but for me, very much Virginia in Abner's time feels like the same atmosphere as when you read the book of Judges in the Bible. And I wanted to see if we could do something about that and try and see what Sir Post was doing and how he was creating this sort of biblical feel in the stories. So I had a look at it a bit more closely and... uh, because if you're trying to identify all the biblical references in the Ankarabna stories, you're you're there for a long time. There there's so many of them. Just little phrases or allusions to biblical incidents. I found that fascinating to try and analyse them and then see what came out of that, because I, I got pages and pages and pages of notes of biblical references in the stories, you yeah, say you're you're there all night. (laughs) And from all over the Old Testament, a few New Testament, but it's mainly Old Testament.
0: (laughs) Yes. I mean, you point out that some of these references would have been difficult even for an early 20th century audience that was more biblically literate in an everyday sense than we generally are today. And it's interesting, you point out that Post's prose imitates the style of the King James Bible. It's very easy to read Uncle Abner today and think, oh, that just that just sounds old-timey. That's the way people wrote back then, or whatever it is. But you point out that Melville Davis and Post didn't actually write like this for his other mystery stories, and this style was very specific to Abner. Can you expand on that a little bit and kind of what he's doing, rhetorically speaking, kind of with this language?
1: I think it is. It's a deliberate adopting of the language of the King James Bible, but also the the language of a civilization that has been created around the King James Bible. Pioneer America, very much the Puritanical Pilgrim Fathers language. And I think it's probably even slightly exaggerated. I don't know if anyone actually did speak like that all the time but the biblical um rhythms are are very very clear and you you can just just feel them because the authorized version of the bible does have a very very particular rhythm in some of the books and particularly in in the prophetic books and in Joshua and Judges and and as I said I th- I think he's done it on purpose to create that feeling of pioneer America, of godly men and women, I get the feeling that he himself was far more of a cosmopolitan type of character. After all, he's a lawyer. He's travelled all over Europe. He's going back to the way people would have spoken, perhaps at the time of his grandparents or even great-grandparents.
0: Yeah, one one wonders with his very religious father if perhaps his father spoke in this way or, you know, exactly what the inspiration was. You do spend some time in the paper on how early American settlers, quote, thought of America as biblical prophecy come to life, end quote, and how this idea was still informing Americans of post-generation. Can you talk just a little bit about that idea of sort of of early America as the new Israel, as the new— promised land?
1: Yeah, I think that it is very, very present in the sermons you read from the early colonial period, the speeches that politicians make. There's almost always this idea of America as a promised land, that there has been an exodus from the wicked, corrupt Europe, and uh, the chance of creating something new, a new godly civilization. I I don't think that you can't even really find a politician or a preacher who doesn't mention it up until probably the First World War. Even in presidential um, acceptance speeches, you have a little reference, tend to always have a little reference to it. And this feeling among Americans that they were special, that because they had been called by God to have this godly society, that this gives them a particular calling, a particular role to play. But then there's also the way that the different colonial societies, the pioneers, the way that they lived, they could relate to the Bible And the way that the pioneers lived in Israel, there are lots of similarities. So I think, too, that it was the Bible could could be an inspiration and an encouragement to so many as well, who are trying to create a civilization practically from nothing. So it works both ways
0: so it's not only a book of spiritual guidance but in some ways perhaps the early settlers and and moving well into the 19th century could have looked at it and said well i see my i see my life reflected in this i see even uh something of a practical uh sense of kinship with what the israelites are going through in these old testament books
1: Yes, I think it's because uh, partly of the distances that are involved. Many societies, many communities, as in the Uncle Abner stories, in pioneer Israel as well, were very, very far from any form of government, any structure of authority. It was the refrain of the Book of Judges is that every man did as he thought fit, as his conscience led him, because there wasn't a governmental political structure Or if there was, it was a very long way away. And so everybody had to, to a certain extent, make up their own minds as to what was good and what wasn't. And I think Pioneer America was very much like that.
0: Yeah. And like you say, there's these, with these grand distances involved. There's a great deal of isolation. And to some extent, as Post brings out in several of the stories, that the arm of the law is quite distant and not always effective at governing this part of very, very Western, future West Virginia, because it just the government is on the other side of the mountains. And there's a lot of times when the citizens of this area feel like they have to take the law into their own hands. And you get this sense in The Angel of the Lord, where You have the nephew Martin who is traveling alone with a whole bundle of cash, and without Abner to step in at some point, it certainly feels like young Martin's life is in danger here. So let's dive into The Angel of the Lord uh, for a little bit in the context of some of these ideas. It was originally called The Broken Stirrup Leather. It was the very first Uncle Abner story ever published in 1911. So are the ideas, some of these ideas that you're talking about with Abner as this figure of the Old Testament prophet, in what way, in what ways are these ideas already at work in this very first Abner story?
1: Well, Abner makes a parallel between himself and the prophet Balaam from the Old Testament. Balaam is generally just known because of his ass um, who (laughs) stopped him going forward. And Abner makes a parallel, a deliberate parallel, between himself and Balaam. The broken stirrup leather, the former title, is in fact what stops him going forward. His horse doesn't talk to him, but he's prevented from moving by this broken stirrup leather. And it happens three times. And Abner takes it as a sign that in the same way as God stopped Balaam from doing what he didn't want him to do, then Abner felt that he too was being stopped from going to various places or doing things because of this uh, stirrup leather that breaks. So he he makes a a deliberate um, parallel himself. He sees himself as being guided by God, by guided by providence is quite often the word he uses. And this is what enables him to intervene and confront the potential murderer. And, of course, this is very original, too, because he doesn't catch a murderer. He stops a man, well... He does catch him in one way, but he stops him committing another murder. He's It's prevention rather than cure in this particular case. So, um, Abner is guided by God to intervene, and he is given to a revelation of what this man is contemplating and equally or what he's already done. So, there's a combination between divine revelation and also Abner's detective abilities which are based entirely on evidence logic and everything else so he combines the two in order to be effective
0: yeah it's quite an interesting combination i know that when i first discovered it i i I knew i hadn't read anything quite like it in the mystery genre
1: no there 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 wasn't in any case before abner there wasn't anything like it at all there have been similarly prophetic although no not not that similar there are prophetic and godly detectives since Abner, but he's definitely a first. As I said, approximately the same time as Father Brown, the two of them come on the scene, and they are the first of a whole load of spiritual detectives. But he definitely starts it off. And he remains original in his approach and in, in the context in which he works. Abner is, is the bluntest of the <laughs> prophetic detectives, the, the most direct the one who's going to confront evil head on, <laughs> and uh, which he does, of course, in the story, the angel of the Lord, he he confronts it, mm-hmm. and of course, that's a bit more New Testament. Um, you know, resist the devil and he will flee from you is <laughs> far more what we have here. He, his way of almost exorcising dicks is more new testament although (laughs) in its approach is the confronting the evil who that in fact cannot stay there confronted with justice and goodness and the spirit of god in abner
0: certainly abner demonstrates this style of i don't want to call it interrogation but but this style of stalking his prey almost that he displays in a number of mysteries he always sort of draws out his opponent, usually starts asking questions and listing things and building, almost building the case to this point where it's irrefutable on the part of the villain, if you want to call them that. And I'm curious, are there any examples sort of of that style that exist among the Old Testament prophets? Is there any sort of situation we can find, any scene in the Old Testament where one of the prophets sort of lays things out this way before coming to that crashing finish?
1: I think that you could put a parallel with Elijah's confronting of Ahab in the Book of Kings. There are, in the Uncle Abner stories, Abner is compared to Elijah on a couple of occasions. And I think it is very much Elijah's approach that Abner uses. After all, sometimes rather than explicitly calling him Elijah, saying he's like Elijah, it refers to him as the Tishbite. For me, that's the closest parallel.
0: You also say in your paper that Uncle Abner is clearly Calvinist. Um, for our readers who might be less familiar, what are the tenets of, of Calvinism, of that particular branch of of uh, Christianity that Abner displays?
1: I think Abner is very hot on the sovereignty of God, which is a very important point for Calvinists. He's very keen on predestination, on being called and being predestined to a, a certain fate. He's also... Very Calvinist in that he believes that justice will out, that God will out, that it isn't necessarily always correct for man to intervene because God will work things out, that God is working his purposes out, and through his sovereignty, everything will turn out the way that God wants it to in the end. And that, that that's really the basis of Abner's religion. God is sovereign. His providence will be victorious. Man is predestined. Man is called. And equally, very, very strict moral code that needs to be obeyed. But in Anna's case, not one that would make people lacking compassion. It's a strict moral code, but it's a strict moral code that also takes into account the weaknesses of men and has pity for the victims
0: how do in a situation like abner's where abner is such an active agent of justice how does that square with this idea that god will take care of this calvinist concept that god's justice will be seen through in the end do you see any contradictions between abner constantly acting as a tool of this justice how does he decide in these stories, when to step back and let God's providence, as he calls it, take its course, versus when he steps in and does something?
1: It's quite difficult to tell. I think Abner would have said that he was being guided by God for the right moment, but quite frequently he does step back and not intervene. After all, in The Angel of the Lord, the story you've just heard, he has known for a long time that Dix is a murderer but he hasn't done anything about it. He only intervenes when it's a question of saving someone else. He was well aware of what had happened beforehand, but he had decided that nothing useful could be achieved by intervening. So there is this balance in Abner, and and I think he, he would consider, yes, it is God who guides him, God who shows him the way, and he, he's... Uh, going to follow the guidings of the spirit.
0: You also mention in your paper that Abner means father of light in Hebrew. Is there any biblical backstory to the name? What's the sort of cachet of that particular name besides its simple meaning in Hebrew?
1: Well, also, Abner is the great military leader under the first king of Israel, Saul, who ends up with a few problems when David is king but who is, in fact, generally considered to be a a positive character, although he um, unfortunately gets murdered. But he is a great military leader in the Old Testament, and I think he is the only Abner. And so, obviously, there is a a throwback to him. The name Abner makes you think of Abner, the leader of the army.
0: Sort of this militant extension of the sovereign's power, I suppose.
1: That, that, that's that's exactly it. He is related to the royal family, that while the king will judge, he is the one who's going to put the judgment into action. But I think the meaning of the name Father of Light was not done unintentionally either. A post would have known the meaning of the name, and it's a very appropriate name for a detective and for a great man of God who is also, a, they said, the church militant, a man of God who's also a man of action.
0: A man of God who is also a man of action. Better words do not exist to describe Melville Davison Post's Uncle Abner. A big thank you to Dr. Suzanne Bray for sharing her time with us from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. For more episodes of Mysterious Mountains, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit wvhumanities.org for links to our podcast page and more content. You can also follow the West Virginia Humanities Council on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The West Virginia Humanities Council is the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The Council is an independent, nonpartisan nonprofit supported by the NEH, the state of West Virginia, contributions from the private sector, and people like you. Its statewide mission is to support a vigorous educational program in the humanities across West Virginia. This audio production of Mysterious Mountains is copyright 2021 by the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme song is Appalachian Impressions Movement 2, A Drain Through Snowy Thurmond by Matthew Jackford. Used with permission.